mostly brought on by the damp weather and whatnot, but be that when it may be. Uh, keep your distance, we'll be all right. Uh, and I'm not really on the top of my thought game on, as we do this lesson, so you're going to have to pay attention. Uh, so, but we're back in First uh, Timothy this morning, First Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we're going to look at verses 11 to 13, and as Brother Fisher already pointed out, we're looking at deacons and their wives today. Uh, we, we already uh, have started taking a look at this. We're, now we're going to look at his, the deacon's family and what that's going to look like. So as I say, this is 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to pick up at verse 11. I'm going to read down to verse 13. And it goes like this. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree, and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Let's have a word of prayer before we get looking at this. Lord, I thank you for the beautiful, bright, sunshiny day that we got today after the kind of damp, raw, drizzly day yesterday. I, for one, love the variety in your creation. You are a God of variety. And I don't care what the world says, but we ought to celebrate that diversity. You give us diversity every single day. You are a beauty-loving God, and we thank you for it. We do ask that you'll guide us through this text that you got us to look at today. Show us what you'd have for us and give me a little bit of clarity of mind as we go through it. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Let's read verse 11 again. It says, Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. So today we're turning a little bit away from the deacon himself, and we're going to take a look at the deacon's family. And notice that the beginning of this verse is identical to, uh, especially, it's, hard, it's a little bit harder in the King James to see. Uh, if you look back to verse 8, in the Greek it's identical. It says, likewise must the deacons be grave. Verse 11 it says, even so must their wives be grave. It's exactly the same uh, in the Greek. It's likewise, just, just in the, exactly the same way the deacon's wives need to be this way, too. Uh, the only difference is, instead of talking about deacons, it's talking about their wives. Now, I should point out that also in the Greek, there is no the or their uh, here at all. It's, it's not, we see it, it's italicized in here. That means that it's not, that, not present. Uh, and the word wives could simply... it's. Uh, it could simply be translated women. Uh, the Greek word is gyne. We know that as that which pertains to a woman, right? I'm not going to get into any further detail than that. You could figure it out on your own. The Greek word is gyne. Uh, because it's a very generic word, that would imply that these criteria should be true of all women in the church. It should be true of all women in the church. Remember... Uh, what I said last week when we were here is these are characteristics we should all be showing 
but in the lives of the bishops and in the lives of the deacons, it's like a reduction sauce. It's the essence of true Christianity. It's the same thing here. Now, I personally believe that based on the context, we're specifically talking about the wives of the deacons. That's my personal belief. Uh, <clears throat> but there, there is room for debate on that. But regardless, these are good character qualities for all women in the church to be demonstrating. So it might not be a bad thing to strive for anyway. Now, also, as you may recall from last week, we're no longer looking at the qualifications for a bishop, but we're looking at those of a deacon here. And now all of a sudden we're talking about women. Paul all of a sudden shifts gears here, now talks about women. In this day and age, there's a lot of outcry for women to have more opportunity to hold offices in the church, isn't there? We see it all around us, right? Some people have even made the case here that we're talking about qualifications for a female deacon. Some people try to make that case. Uh, these same people sometimes take it one step further and say, well, if Paul had female deacons in mind here, then there's a possibility for female bishops too, right? This is how people take this, this train. Uh, and those people are trying to make a case for women pastors, which is impossible to back up. It's impossible to back that concept up. There is no evidence that Paul had that in mind. In fact, quite the opposite, as we already studied in verses 1 to 7. I'm not going to teach that all over again. You can listen to it again yourself. Verses 1 to 7, Paul made it absolutely clear that he, as pastors, he sees only men, andros. But when these people make this kind of an argument, they're basing their whole argument on a faulty premise. And that's never a safe place to start is it? If you start with a mistake, the rest of your whole argument is going to be a mistake too. That's uh, logical reasoning 101. Now with all that being said, there can be a case made for female deacons. I'll, I'll say that right out front. There can be a case made for female deacons. Women are certainly allowed to partake in ministries, aren't they? They certainly are. In fact, let's uh, bump over to uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Classic passage. Anybody, any preacher who's ever preaching this has to go to this one. Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Paul, writing again, he says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Cancria. That word servant is diakonos. So Phoebe was a diakonos of the church of Cancria. I don't want to get into all the aspects of that because it's going to take us a little bit off topic here today. Uh, we're not going to get into the what, where, and how of ministry today because that's not what Paul's focus is here. Paul's focus here is on the qualifications, not the office, not what this person does. Here's what qualifies a person to be in this office. To, to look at what they do, that's a totally different topic, and we're not going to get into it. Uh, by the way, if you do want to study this, I told you this last week, I'm going to tell you again this week. If you want the clearest description in the Bible of what the office of a deacon looks like, go to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We talked about that. That was your auxiliary reading that I gave you last week. I'm telling you, that's your auxiliary reading again this week. If you didn't get to it, do it this afternoon. 
But today I want to look at the qualifications, and I want to, those qualifications involve four major aspects that I want to look at today. Four major aspects, and if you look down through that verse that we just looked at, you can see them. I'm not going to list them right now. But first of all, it says that they need to be grave. They need to be grave. That's exactly the same term that was used in verse 8 to describe deacons. They need to be grave. And last week when we talked about it, that word really literally could be translated as respectable, honorable, somebody who in society we can look up to. Uh, I could even make the argument, I believe is, it's a little bit shaky, but I could make the argument that the other three qualities that Paul lists here are just descriptions of exactly what that respectability looks like. They must be grave, respectable. And here's what I mean by grave. They need to be not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. I could make that case from the Greek. I'm not going to, but I think I could. Uh, the first one that's listed is not slanderers. It's a negative word. The Greek word for slanderer is diabolos. Isn't that something? Sounds diabolical, doesn't it? Diabolos. We're going to see that used again when we get to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 3, and we see it in Titus chapter 2, 3. I'm not going to steal my own thunder and go look at that right now. If you want to, you can look it up yourself. But we're talking about people who have malicious speech. People who are deliberately trying to cut people down. People who are mean in their words and just cutting people down all the time with their words. That has no place in the church. I hope you realize that. And certainly not in church leadership. Certainly not in church leadership. Then it says that these women are to be sober. Some Bibles will translate that as temperate. We already saw that as a qualification of a bishop in verse 2. Uh, and in Titus chapter 2, verse 2, it's seen as a trait of older men. Not bishops, not deacons, just, just plain older men in the church ought to be sober. By the way, those are the only other times that Paul uses this particular word. To describe bishops, to describe uh, deacons' wives, and to describe older men. Uh, nephalios is the word. He uses other similar words for sober, but these are the only times that he uses this particular one. And he says that these women are supposed to be faithful in all things. Faithful in all things. Now, if somebody is faithful in all things... That means that they're faithful in each and every little individual thing, doesn't it? Each and every individual thing. Jesus had something to say about that. Uh, let's turn to Luke chapter 16. And you might want to keep your finger there because we're going to go over to Luke 17 later on. Uh, if I can find Luke. Luke's a big book. There it is. Uh, Luke chapter 16. Uh, particularly verses 10 to 12. <clears throat> Jesus talking, he says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you trust, 
who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? Jesus is talking about if you're going to be faithful, truly faithful, you're going to be faithful in every single little detail of your life. Now that's pretty all-encompassing. By the way, faithfulness or trustworthiness is from the Greek word pistos. And it was very important to Paul. He uses pistos a lot. Uh, I've told you this before. I, to fully encompass myself with Greek, I try to read other Greek texts of the day. Uh, I just finished reading uh, Plato's The Republic this past week. I was reading that while I was in my hotel room. And Plato talked a lot about pistos also, someone being faithful as a leader of this republic that he proposed. Uh, Paul uses it 17 times in the pastoral epistles alone. 17 times in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Three books, he uses it 17 times. Trustworthiness, faithfulness is critically important for the man of God. And this woman must be trustworthy in all aspects of life. Someone you can trust with anything. Big things, little things, you can trust them with anything. So why start such strict rules on behavior? Why do you suppose it has to be so strict on, on behavior here? Absolutely. We're going we're gonna to get there in a little bit. Uh, that's absolutely true. Uh, but if a woman's not trustworthy, or if a woman is a malicious gossip, remember it says not slandering, uh, or is intemperate, not sober, then they can do a lot of harm in the church, right? Just like we saw the damages that an uncontrolled deacon can do, or an uncontrolled bishop can do, women who can't control themselves in church can do just as much damage. This is especially true if this woman is, pardon me, if this woman is a deacon's wife. He might be in complete control of his own self, right? He might fit all the criteria. He's faithful, he's sober, he's respectable, he's this, he's that. He, he's got his life buttoned down. But if his wife can't control herself in all respects, she can undermine her husband's ministry. And that's exactly what you were saying. And that extends into a lot of areas, doesn't it? I mean, you might even have a wife who's got unrealistic uh, demands on her husband, right? Well, I just don't like how much time you're spending there at church. Wives can make unrealistic demands, and that can cut into a, a man's ministry. And that's why this is so important. It's a very real threat. I'm not going to get into any of you. You guys picked right up on it. You know where we're going with that. It's critically important. Well, I'm not a deacon. I don't have to worry. You can undermine someone else's ministry by not living your life properly. Let's move on to verse 12. Oops, I told you to keep your finger in Luke, and I just lost it. Anyway, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. So now Paul turns his eye back to the deacon. All right, we've finished looking at the deacon's wife. Now let's look back at the deacon again. 
this deacon is supposed to be the husband of one wife. Again, I think there might be a little bit of wiggle room here as to whether or not this means that a deacon must be married. I talked about that a little bit when, when it said a bishop, he must be the husband of one wife. Does that mean if someone's not married, they can't be a pastor? I think there's a little bit of wiggle room there. Uh, but I'll come right back around to uh, what I said then. Being married gives a deacon a lot broader range of experience to draw from, to be sure. I think we all agree on that. We all know what we're talking about there. Uh, being married gives you a whole different realm of prospects and interpersonal relationships, doesn't it? Uh, and the jokes can go on forever. Uh, but whether a deacon is in fact married or not, Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 says something. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. Jesus says, But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So this individual must demonstrate a very high level of maturity and integrity, both in his inner passions as well as his outward life. Well, I'm only married to one woman, but too often we hear of pastors who may, in the most literal sense, be husbands of one wife. They've only got one wife, but they're chasing their passions on the Internet or they're flirting with women wrongfully. We hear about it all the time, right? You don't have to go very far. There's no place for that in the church. Yes, Diane. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep, it, it goes both ways. Uh, yep, it, that's why I say these are good rules for every single one of us to be following, but most especially someone in church leadership. We all ought to be pursuing these qualifications, but most especially someone who's in a leadership position recognized as such. The deacon, it, uh, it goes on, it also says, he must rule his children and their own houses well. We've already looked at that as described in verses 4 and 5, talking about a bishop. I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail on that again. However, I will point out that this time the order is reversed. Did you notice that? This time the order is reversed. And I'll be upfront with you. I'm not exactly sure what to make of that. Uh, but we should have a, a little cultural background here for a moment. Let's step back into first century church. All right, Here we are. We're in 21st century. Let's, let's roll it back 2,000 years. We're going to go. Now we're first century Christians. In today's society, our church life and our home life is distinctly separate, right? I go, I come down here, we, come, we meet in this house, and then I go back home to my house. And my home life and my church life is different. But in the early church, the church met in homes. They met in people's homes. It's a lot harder to live a double life then, isn't it? 
I've uh, gone to church with Plymouth Brethren who meet in each other's houses. It, you really see how people live when you're in their house, having your church service in their house. Paul here is calling for a seamlessness between their home life and their church life. And that's what we ought to be striving for even today. Yes, we all jump in our cars and we drive to Surrey. Other than Brother Fisher, none of us live in Surrey, do we? We all come in from other places. We, come to, we jump in our cars and we come to Surrey and then we go away. But there still ought to be a seamlessness. When I leave my house, when I go to church, there shouldn't be any difference, should there? The way I live at home is the way I live at church. Because... Uh, if a deacon is one person at home and another person at church, then his church life is naturally going to be stilted, isn't it? It's going to be stilted. It's going to be different. It's going to be forced. It's going to be unrealistic. And that is the worst form of hypocrisy. Let's move to verse 13. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree, and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Starts right off with a little word, for. In the Greek, it's also three letters. It's gar. It's a conjunction. It joins this verse with the one just before it. We kind of get that with English, too. For does the same thing. It's the same thing in Greek. Uh, if a deacon has a loving wife and a loving child children, and a disciplined home life, then it's going to have rewards of its own, isn't it? It's going to have rewards of its own. And this is absolutely necessary for a deacon. But then verse 13 puts the icing on the cake, too. It says, For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree. If a deacon does his job well, there's a great gain in store for him. That's what it's really saying. The key modifier is that the job must be done well. Not just, I hold the office of a deacon and I flub-dub my way through it. No. This is someone who does the job well. We've seen this word before. It's the Greek word kalos. Uh, Paul uses it 11 times, four of them here in 1 Timothy. Do the job well. If the deacon does his job the way God intends it to be done, he's going to gain a good standing. Uh, by the way, the other two times in the New Testament where this word gain, kalos, is used, it refers to gaining something at great effort. Using great effort to gain something. Since there's only two other places where it's used, let's go look them up. I, remember I told you to look at Luke 17? I've got to find it. You kept your finger there like I asked you to. Luke 17, verse 33. Oop. There isn't a verse 33 in Matthew 17. Just a bit of Bible trivia for you. Uh, here we go. Uh, Luke chapter 17, verse 33. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. That's gain. Uh, look over to Acts, chapter 20, 
verse 28. This comes at a great cost, great struggle. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves, and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood. With His own blood. That's the cost. You see, what this deacon gains comes at great cost. Did you know that it costs something to serve God? You give up of your time. You give up of yourself. There's lots of things I'd rather do. But the reward is guaranteed. God promises a reward, but it's going to come at the high price of effort and discipline. So, what does he mean by a good degree? What do you mean? You make a promise here. What do you mean a good degree? Some Bibles say an excellent standing. Uh, the word is bathmos. It often refers to a rank or a grade. Uh, when a deacon sacrifices of himself, gives up his time, gives up his efforts, gives up whatever it may be to do the job right, he will be recognized. There will be a level of respect which will come with doing the job of a deacon well. For one thing, they'll be recognized within the church. But they will certainly, certainly be recognized by God. That's what Jesus was saying when he says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the reward we're talking about here. But there's a second reward for this good deacon, and it's listed right here. Remember, we're not done with that he purchases to himself a good degree. There's more. And great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now that's something, isn't it? Great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Do you ever feel kind of, well, I'm a little bit cowardly, I'm a little bit, have a hard time sharing the gospel or something like that? Well, if you keep doing the job and keep doing the job well, there comes with it a great boldness. Now, unwarranted pride is a dangerous thing. Don't get me wrong. But great boldness and a confident assurance is something entirely different. We can have boldness and an assurance that I am on God's mission and I'm doing what God wants me to do. And that ought to give us some boldness. Morning. See, faithful service as a deacon is one way to acquire that. Do you wish you had a little more boldness to share the gospel? Being faithful. Being faithful consistently, doing a good job as a deacon, has benefits to the one who's serving. And isn't that a blessed promise? Uh, we were just singing that. that uh, I forget exactly how the words go in that hymn uh, that we were just singing. But the more that I serve him, the sweeter he grows. The more, th- uh, the more that I love him, the more love he bestows. It keeps snowballing, doesn't it? It keeps snowballing. If we are faithful to serve Him, He's going to give us more boldness to serve Him more faithfully. That's something we all ought to be striving for, hadn't we? I think that's a good spot for me to break off, and let's, let's have a word of prayer on that.